Hey everyone, Hoppo here. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to get into the studio because of the COVID outbreak, so the quality of these episodes may not be as good as usual. But stay safe, and uh, we'll get through all this together. Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad, and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way, and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, it's a pleasure to have Emily Myers in the beach shack. She grew up swimming, then got into ocean swimming, and then the challenge was to do the English Channel, which she did later on in her life. She did it for her sister who had childhood brain cancer, and she raised a lot of money in the meantime. So now let's have a listen to my chat with Emily. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, it's a, a pleasure. It's uh, someone who does a lot of ocean swimming and got a great story. And uh, and we'll see uh, where that goes to the end when she did the uh, English Channel. So it's a welcome, Emily Myers. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show. Mate, it's a pleasure. And uh, let's get into it and just start talking about your early days. What was the reason, you know, to, you started doing ocean swimming and was it, were you starting as a kid doing pool swimming to, to get into it? Yeah, so I started swim training when I was at school. Um, so I trained at Des Renford Aquatic Centre and at St Catharines um, under coach Barry Rogers. And I suppose I knew early on that my, my sport, my passion was in the water. So I tended to stick to anything water-based, um, you know, and that's, where my passion started. And did you find you had um, like the, the ability to do it or was there something you just did and then that came in later on, you know, the, the times got quicker and to keep you uh, motivated? Yeah, I'm not sure I was a natural. Um, I tend to try pretty hard at anything I do. So I try to challenge myself and see how good I can get um, and that's what motivates me and early on, you know, it was just as much trying out everything and finding what my passion was. So I did squad training, I played water polo, um, and then at the end of school, I kind of found this passion for open water swimming that had developed through nippers down at the beach um, and and through the time I spent in the water. So tell us about the first ocean swim you ever did. So the first ocean swim I ever did, um, it was probably the Coogee Island swim, and I remember... I'd you know, done training and dad said, if this is something you want to do, you've got to show me that you can swim the distance beforehand. So we went down on a Sunday morning and swam laps of the bay until I'd passed the 2.4K mark. And dad said, well, go ahead and give it a go. So I was under the age of legal entry, um, but that didn't stop me. I signed up and, and gave it a go. And I think for the next three years, the, the entered age was always 13. Um, just so that I could I could have the chance and that was that was the first swim and it was pretty daunting and it's something that I look you know I do every weekend now but back then that was my big challenge and then 
from then I went and did the Palm to Whale Beach swim and that was the next challenge and then it's kind of taken off from there. Now, a lot of listeners from overseas that listen to this podcast, they've all got the fear of sharks. Everyone, you know, and, and for people listening, the Coogee swim, it's, it's what, at least a kilometre out to sea around an island and back. Um, and then the other one is from Palm Beach to Whale Beach. You're going around headlands and you're a long way sort of off the beach and, you know, a lot of sharky waters. And how did you deal with that? Or you don't have any fear of the sharks? No, I definitely have a fear of sharks. Um, it's something that I'm very cautious of, but I try to manage. So it's kind of a risk thing for me. So swimming around the island, it was something that I'd seen a lot of other people do and there's lifeguards that can see you. So for me, I think that that's a safe bit of water. There's other places that I would just never think of swimming, um, you know, late at night or early mornings. Um, no, the sharks are definitely a consideration. So I steer clear, but but even the palm to um, palm to whale beach, I, I remember it was so exposed, so rough, um, and I, I was staring at these houses along the cliff, and they just didn't seem to be moving very quickly. So, um, yeah, there's different factors, different places that your mind takes you when you swim, but spotting sharks is definitely one of them. But um, hopefully, I, I won't have a, a shark encounter anytime soon. Well, for the you know the people that are listening, that and, and a lot of them come down to Bondi from overseas, and they won't go in past it knee depth because they think <laughs> if they go out any further, they're going to be eaten by a shark. But you know, just so to keep everyone's mind at rest, it's the chances of, of, of a shark attack is you're probably more chance of getting hit by lightning in Australia than you are a shark attack. So you know, even though they're out there and they're around, it's a, a very small percentage of people that get attacked. Yeah, I've definitely seen my fair share of sharks, but there's a, a line between the bottom dwellers and the peaceful-looking sharks yeah, or the yeah. friendly sharks <laughs> and those that are you know, a bit more attacking. So touch wood, I've never had an attacking shark come near me. Well, speaking of sharks, the, there's one, a swim that I've done uh, many times and the biggest sharks, I think, around Australia that come across from South Africa are over in Western Australia. And there's a race in Perth, from uh, Cottesloe across the Rottnest Island. And it's about close to 20 kilometres. And you've done that a fair few times. So, And I've done it in a team, though, of four, which to me, I think that's quite good. But then I hear you've done it on your own as a solo. And that's, uh, you know, for me doing it and then listening to the solos, it's just a crazy and amazing effort. It's pretty special, um, and I have to say that that's probably the most sharkiest place that I, I have swum. But there's something about, um, and you'd be able to relate to this, leaving Cottesloe Beach, it's 5.45 in the morning, it's pitch black, there's a glimmer of sunrise coming up over the headland, and there's these birds that sing, um, and they're just, you know, very loud. And I remember it vividly standing on the start line each year, and each year I've had different kind of preparations. So I've done it five times as a solo and I still just have admiration for the training and the investment and, and the race because it's really quite special and there's nothing nothing in Australia and I honestly don't think around the world that's like it. So it takes, as you know, it's 20 kilometres um, and it ends at Rottnest Island and from the start line you can't even see it. Um, on a good day you can see a glimmer in the horizon but um, it, it's a pretty special swim and I still remember you just jump in and you're so focused on just trying to control your emotions and how you're feeling. 
and um, it, it's something that's really hard to do. And I've, you know, always tried to do something different each year to prepare so that I'm better equipped, whether it's physically, mentally, um, whether it's swim training or land-based training. And um, so, no, it's, it's a favourite race of mine, which is why I keep going back. And there's so many different components to it. There's the navigation, there's the conditions, the winds. Um, I don't think I've studied wind charts as much as I have for that body of water and, um, and as much strategy every year is different. Um, this year I did it and the border opened, obviously with the coronavirus, we've got border controls in, in Australia and the border opened for me to travel there the day before my planned flight. So I was very lucky and so I, I flew over and um, it all came together at the last minute. But my strategy this year was to go hard from the, from the start and see how long I could hold on for. And I, I still am haunted by that pain um, when you just don't know if you've got anything left, but you're just motivated by the training and the preparation and the investment of my team because, you know, I've got a paddler, I've got crew that come over with me, I've got a boat captain by my side, um, and, and they're all there to see me do well. So I really want to perform as best as I can for them. So I remember this year, Dad was paddling next to me and you know I'm pretty lucky to have a dad that can do that and I knew I don't ask questions I stop every half an hour and, and have a drink and that stops about two or three seconds because it just is time that I don't want to give away in a race and so I, I stop lie on my back have a drink and keep going and I got to about the 18k mark and at that point it's quite deceiving because as you approach the island, it gets super shallow and I could see the bottom and it's almost like you could stand up, but you've still got this last push to the end and the winds come up and you just want to give it everything. And so at that point I was pretty exhausted, but, but still going really well. And dad said to me, you're in third place um, and you know, you've got to keep going because there's someone close. And so I was, motivated I put my head down and I, and I kept going quite hard and I got to the 19 kilometer mark and I predominantly breathed to my left and I took a breath to my right and I saw just what you don't want to see and that's another swimmer um, within you know 100 meters of you and I just thought you're kidding me I've done so much to get to this point I just want to get on that podium as best as I can that was that was the goal coming here and, and I'm within, you know, I'm so close, I can see the bottom. And at that, I just put my head down and I knew that I had to hang on because if I was feeling like I'd, I was quite exhausted, I, you know, everyone's in the same boat. So I backed my training and my prep and put my head down and went as hard as I could. And, and for me, I've got a quite a relaxed stroke. So when people look at me, they don't see the panic or the, or the effort, but um, I can guarantee you I was giving it everything and it got down to, um, as I approached, there's, there's a wharf that kind of funnels into the finish line. And I, you start to hear glimpses of noise. And I just could hear the whole wharf, people I've never met cheering for me. Um, and they were really rallying. And the person I could hear loudest was my mum. And they were just screaming, the whole boat crew. And so at that, I just had to run up this ramp at the end. Imagine swimming 20K and you've got to run up a ramp. And um, I was just relieved. And I crossed the line and the commentator asked me, you know, you seem so relaxed. And I said, look, 
I was doing my best and, and if it was going to hold me on to third place, then that was going to be terrific. But at the end of the day, you know, I couldn't do any, anything extra. Yeah. But it's, when you said you stood up, I know when I've done it and, and I've got to that and, and that was in a team. We get to have a break on the boat and, and have something to drink and eat and everything. The solo swimmer is all that out of the water and they need to just get past that and you've got to stay in the water as you mentioned. But it's so close, you can still be beaten in that short run to the to the finish line, can't you? Oh, absolutely. Um, I knew that if I fell over, if I lost the balance in my legs after being flat for so long, that um, that I could have could have lost my third place then and there. And there's been other finishes that have been a lot closer, um, down to you know less than a second. But um, this one, I was confident that I could do it, so I could back myself in that sense. But oh, you just don't want to fall right at that last ramp, um, and, and it haunts me that you've got to swim all that way and then do run up this sloped ramp. But oh, look, it is what it is. <laughs> Mate, that's right. Now, your dad, you said that was support for you um, for the Rottnest swims and paddling, but you did, he did do the English Channel and you went over and supported him. Yeah, in 2014, dad swam the channel and he had a phenomenal day and he performed even better. He just completely blitzed the channel. And um, for, for those that don't know, that the English Channel is, what we classify as the Mount Everest of open water swimming. Um, it's You start in England and swim to France. I think historically you've been able to do it the other way, but now in, in the modern swimming times, it's only a one-way swim. And he did it in 2014, and I was lucky enough to do the training preparations with him. So I'd either swim along with him or paddle where I could to, to help him along. And... Yeah, I remember flying over to England and um, we came down the, the highway as we approached Dover and the seas were just huge. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what have we got ourselves in for? <laughs> but luckily that um, that storm cell passed and, and the seas calmed down and, and he swam um, a fantastic, fantastic swim. And I was lucky enough to, to see what it was like and to learn the ropes a bit and to have some experience alongside of him. But at that stage, you never thought you'd ever do the English Channel? No, never. Um, people actually asked me. They said, you've done all this training. I think my, my family at the time after Dad's swim said, can you just jump in so that we don't have to come back? And um, I laughed and I said, never. I will never do that this swim and that was just out of admiration because I'd seen what it was like and it was really tough to do. I'd, um, you know, followed other swimmers before dad and um, it's, you know, it, it is tough. The swell, the tides, the temperature of the water is just very cold for such a long amount of time. So on that basis, I said, this isn't for me. Um, I'll stick to the warmer warmer waters and um, maybe take on my first rot nest, which I'd never done at that point. Right. So you've done the rot nest and then, well, what sparked to go, well, yeah, now I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to do the English Channel. Yeah, I came back from Dad's swim um, and I was motivated by what I saw and I started spending a, a bit more time in the pool and doing some serious squad sessions. Um, I changed coaches and that really challenged me and motivated me to kind of take, take it up a level. And then I thought, you know what, I actually think that 
I've done Rotnest. I thought this is something the English Channel that I could do and I could do it well. And as I said before, I like a challenge and I like seeing how how I can perform and try to do things as best as I can. So I thought that the opportunity was there and the timing was was right um, for me at that time that I could make a commitment. So that was three years out from my channel swim. So that was 2016 that I made a booking with a, a boat captain to take me. And um, yeah, that was kind of the next step. And again, I thought I could do it. And I thought I could do it well. So I, I gave it a go. Right. So, they, so you had a, a plan of three years before you went and did it. Yeah, so three years. Um, I kept it very quiet for the first year and a half um, because at that point I was just trying to build my swimming base and, and my time in the water. And I was afraid that people were going to ask me every day about this you know, channel adventure that I had. And at that time I was just trying to you know, balance my training commitments and my study and work commitments. So about 18 months out, I started to tell more and more people um, and doing that I realized that everyone was supportive of me everyone was going to back me and do what they could to help me prepare and and to make it over there and have a successful day so tell us a bit about the training like is it a lot of long distance training is it you know how many kilometers would you be doing in a week to to get to a level to be able to do the English channel yeah so I was spending doing sessions up to 10k of a morning um every week every weekday to build my my speed and my endurance in the pool. And then on a weekend, I would tend to swim for anywhere between four and eight hours on a Saturday in, in one go. So I'd go to the harbour here in Sydney or to the ocean and um, pack, pack all my nutrition that I needed and have a kind of a schedule of support swimmers that would come and do a little bit with me throughout the day. So that could get you know, that's a lot of mileage, especially when you're knocking out, you know, over 25K in one go every Saturday. So that was that was my main bulk of my training. And I'd also do land-based. So for me, I was really petrified of getting an injury. So I tried to do a lot of injury prevention on the land. So Pilates, yoga, strength style work, just to balance the, the effort that you're putting in in the water to make sure that all the mechanisms in your body are still functioning and, and working as they should. Because it would take a lot out of your shoulders. Obviously, that's the main part of your body. So did you get through okay by doing the um, preventative work? Yeah, I think I was really smart about it. And that's something that I tried to be proactive rather than doing all the training and getting to the point of having an injury. Um, so I was very, very much... Um, injury-free for that whole period. I would have weekly massages, weekly physio, um, you know, supervised time at the gym training. So all things just to keep my body functioning as it, as it should. Um, and then working with a nutritionist, both for your daily diet and then your swim diet, which are just two very separate things that I've learnt. Um, the rules that apply for what you eat during a marathon swim definitely don't apply in the day-to-day Um diet so yeah that was that was my way of going about it and my coach and I I train with Rob Fernandez and we had this little saying and it was as much speed as I could get would help me get from England to France in the quickest amount of time so the whole philosophy was 
the least amount of time I have to spend in the water, the better. So we really did focus. Other marathon swimmers prepare for the endurance more. I was really trying to focus on maintaining speed um, because that's something that I thought I had on other endurance swimmers and something that I could use to my advantage. So, yeah, that kind of countered the need to put on weight, which is another strategy that marathon swimmers who go to Swim English Channel adopt. And that's a, a way to stay warm. It's a way to keep the warmth because the water in England can, on a, on a great day, it can be 18, but on, on a usual day, it's 15 to 16. So for an extended amount of time, that's quite cold. So other people put on weight. I adopted for the, um, the, the speed option. But even doing that, it's really hard when you're training as much as you are to maintain your weight. So I was able to indulge in ice creams and, and milkshakes after training. So they were the rewards. Well, there you go. You know, anyone uh, out there that wants to eat a heap of ice cream, just get in and do the English Channel and you can <laughs> do that then. You can keep your weight off. <laughs> I might think of doing that. <laughs> Well, that's uh, so. What uh, you've obviously got to take in consideration because the tides over there are so massive. Like, did you go off course at all uh, during that swim? Um, so it was funny. The tides just are a completely different scale to Australia. The, the amount of water that moves, I've never seen. Um, you could throw a stick in and just watch it fly across the channel. So that's really hard when you're trying to swim in a different direction to what it's running. So I worked with the boat captain and, and worked with him about the speed and how long it was going to take me and my strategy and the way I swim. And he said, I, I think the time to start is 1am. So it was August 2019 um, that we were over there. And I remember sitting on the wharf and the captain had said, we're starting at 1am because that would work best with the tides. And I was sitting on the wharf waiting for the captain to come to pick me up, to drive me to the start line. And I could hear the whistle of the wind. And I just thought, oh, this is going to be a tough day at the office um, if that wind stays up. And so I knew that the captain had considered the tides. So you tend to swim in, in an S-like shape. And that just follows what the tide is doing at that time. And you try and use it to your advantage. Um, and so that's why you start swims at, at specific times. So 1am was my time on the day and I remember jumping in the water and getting to the start line and just thinking, I hope this wind dies down. And, and it was scheduled too. It was meant to have died down by 1am, but, you know, anyone who knows the English, English weather, whether you're watching the ashes will know that it's very unpredictable and um, it, it just didn't follow suit on that day. And... You say you went at 1am 1 1am and it's pitch black. So how do you navigate? Like, do you watch the boat or how does that pan out? Yeah, so I breathed predominantly to my left and so the boat was going to sit on that side and it's very much I just follow the boat. So they stuck right next to me, almost to between a metre and two metres away, so super close. And I just had to swim next to them. They did all the navigation um, and again, I don't think I've seen darkness like it. It was just pitch black in the water and I definitely wouldn't have been able to t tell you, you know, east from west. So I was lucky to have that. And there's this little light that sits off the edge of the boat 
and give throws a bit of light onto the water and I just had to stay within the throw of that light for until the sun came up and um, I've never been so happy to see a sunrise um, and when the sun eventually came up you know four to five hours after I started that's the wind died down um, and I got a bit of relief but it was really hard to stay in the throw of the boat's light because the waves were just pounding um, and probably embarrassingly for those four or five hours, I was motivated by anger. Um, and I just thought this isn't, this isn't what I thought I was in for this. Uh, you know, I thought I trained better and was going to be rewarded by, by a better day and better conditions. But ultimately, you know, that's the nature of marathon swimming and that's what you've got to be able to handle. And I managed to turn that mindset around to focus on the positive and the positive was that I was experienced enough to be able to swim in those conditions and there were other people out on the same day as me that um that didn't get through that and they had to turn around and you know others I just had to focus on what I could do and I just put my head down and thought furthest I can get while these conditions are tough I'm going to be rewarded when I get Mm. to the other side. So the back end would have been rewarding because the wind dropped off but probably the people that don't know, we do get a rough and choppy conditions in Australia with the ocean swimming. So that probably played a, a big part in you going over there uh, and doing it with the wind. Yeah, so I tried to manage my training in Australia to get uh, the best of everything. So some days I was looking for really cold water. So I'd go to the harbour or I went down to Melbourne for doing long training camps. Other days I wanted you know, maximum hours in the water. So I'd try and make it easier on my body and go to calmer places like the harbour. Um, and then, you know, a big component is preparing for those rough seas. And for that, I was doing Kuji to Bondi swims multiple times. And, you know, you get the winds up there and you get a bit of bump and it swims around Kuji Island. So all things that you just want to prepare yourself and you want to prepare for the worst and hope for the best. So that's what I was trying to do. I didn't want to go in with any doubts or any vulnerability in my training. Do you think the three years of the training, what was the toughest mentally? The, the training to get to that point to do the, to do the English Channel or actually when you finally got there and then did the English Channel? Um, probably both. I, I definitely didn't have an easy day at the office in, in England, but you know, I remember on Friday afternoons at work, people would ask me what I had planned for the weekend. And, you know, I'd casually say to them, oh, I'll have a swim at the beach and then just an easy day on Sunday. And what they didn't realise in that was that my going to the beach was an eight-hour, you know, marathon effort. Um, so the prep was definitely tough. Um, the day at the office was also tough in England, but I definitely don't have regrets with any component of my preparation or the day that I was given in England. So, yeah, not an easy thing and not something you ever want to have doubts about. I think when people ask me, should they should they do the channel, I say to them, it's definitely not something you want to be talked into. You want to be motivated to do it based on your own mindset and your own goals. And what time did you end up doing for people out there listening? Well, 10 hours 51. Um so that was how long it took me to get from England to France. I was extremely happy to, to land in France when my feet touched the rocks. 
I was just relieved um, and I was so happy and I you know, put my hands up in the air and, and gave the boat a big cheer and I could hear them you know, singing back at me with praise and it was just relief. It was seeing the plan come together and it being executed that, um, yeah, that made me most happy. Yeah. And would you ever do it again? Never. <laughs> Never. Um, I think that I honestly gave that swim everything I had and I'm so happy with the preparation that I was able to pull together and I just think that that was my day and that was my experience in the channel and I'm very content with that. And there's another reason you were doing the swim and that's to raise some funds um, for your sister. Tell us uh, a little bit about that uh, story. Yeah, so in the process of swimming the channel, I did fundraising for Children's Cancer Institute, which is an Australian-based organisation that raises much-needed funds for um, childhood cancer and research and treatments. And my sister passed away, um, Sarah was her name, from a childhood cancer when I was very little. So I always wanted to be able to give back to the organisation and raise awareness and support their research. And for me, this was the perfect opportunity. Um, so we'd raised money through Dad's Swim um, across the channel and I wanted to continue the conversations and raising awareness. So to be able to see the support of all my family, friends, colleagues um, and the local community get behind children's cancer was as rewarding as the swim was. And to be able to see where all, all the funds raised has gone after the swim has been even more rewarding because they are, they're making serious grounds in the research and the fight against childhood cancer. And that's something that, you know, I'd just like to see continue um, going forward. And so I was as much motivated by Sarah and by the funds that I was able to raise for childhood cancer um, across the channel as anything. And in those tough times going across the channel, did Sarah come into your mind at all? Oh, absolutely. Um, she was there the entire way for me and knowing that was motivating. Um, and it's also tough because you mentally you've got to be pretty strong. And so being able to think about that but not get emotional about it or um, in, invested in, in those thoughts is a tough thing. But I know that... Um, yeah, she was with me and even at challenging points in my preparation, I just knew that I got through that with her support. So, yeah, I'm very lucky for that. Mate, uh, a great achievement and uh, well done on the fundraising. And can people still fundraise now? Or can they, you know, everyone listening out there and, and help out? Is there a, a, somewhere, a website to go to? Absolutely. Um, if you want to fundraise children's cancer, um, CCIA um, fundraise every day get behind them because the money is going direct to the scientists and the research. So that's a fantastic thing. Yeah, that's great. And uh, yeah, anyone out there, jump on there and uh, and donate if you can. Now, the end of the interview, I, I always do um, now the five fun facts. So I'm going to throw some uh, five questions to you. You can answer them any way you want. Anything could come out. So okay. uh, here's the first uh, question. This sounds risky. <laughs> it could be, you never know. <laughs> Who is the messiest person you know? Oh, without hesitation, you do not want to be in the kitchen after my sister's been in there. Um, <laughs> there is always a trail, but you can't say anything because the food she cooks makes up for it. <laughs> when did you screw everything up 
but no one ever found it was you? Oh, this is a tough one. I think um, I do have a philosophy. Honesty is the best policy. So that goes against this, but there's also a saying in my family of Emily Boogie Traps because I tend to leave leave a lot um, in my wake <laughs> and I always get found out. So if there's a lesson in that, it's, it's own them and, and be forthcoming. <laughs> but um, the empty box of ice cream in the freezer tended always to be me in the channel prep. <laughs> Uh, Favourite childhood memory? Oh, I couldn't bet going down to Coogee with Dad every day or every weekend um, for a swim. I'd get rewarded with a 20-cent piece for the shower and a hot chocolate, and that's all I needed. Um, So, yeah, to have that memory and to see where it's taken us is quite special. Last time you cried? Last time I cried was probably with half of Australia watching the Olympics. Um, Watching, I remember watching the end of the women's marathon um, and Sinead Diver's interview was just um, very emotional. So that was the last time I cried. Favourite takeaway food? Favourite takeaway food is definitely Thai. A muscle mum beef curry is, um, can't be beaten. Fantastic. Emily, uh, it's been unreal having you in the beach shack and telling your story and uh, congratulations on that achievement of swimming the English Channel and all your other open water swimming and uh, raising funds for your sister. It's, uh, you should be very proud of yourself. Thanks so much for having me, Hoppo. It's been great to have a chat. Now let's go to Beach Banner. This week in the Beach Shack, it's uh, a warm welcome to a former lifeguard, Peter Cahoon. How are you? Hello, Hoppo. Great to be with mate, you. Mate, uh, mate, uh, Thinking back in the day, the mm. uh, Tamarama was always called the Rock, and you ended up going there when you were misbehaving <laughs> at the other beaches. And that's right. Tell me about some of the characters that that got sent to the Rock. Oh, that's right, Hopper. Back in the day, you didn't rotate through the three beaches, and if you had, if you got on the wrong side of <laughs> of those in charge, you were sent to a season at the Rock, and we called Tamarama <laughs> the Rock. It, look, it was it, it, it was sort of based on the ascent to Alcatraz sort of thing because Tamarama, as we know, is only a little 50-metre sort of wide beach surrounded by two big headlands and you're sort of in there and trapped. And it's a very dangerous beach, as we know, but some of the characters that were sent there, you can understand why they were sent there because <laughs> management didn't want them at Bondi. <laughs> oh, you had, you had guys like... Dave Noonan. Now, Dave Noonan was sent there with Pete Seville. He was a great uh, RIP. Uh, he was he was a great guy, and he was the Felix Unger of lifeguards. <laughs> everything there was germs everywhere. He had to spray everything down, and then you'd had Pete Seville, who was a drummer. He was a mad rock and roll drummer, and he bring his drum kits down there and you'd have sort of drum practice in the back of the, <laughs> the first aid room. And then of course in later years you had guys like like Brendan Reed who was he was very militant. Very militant. <laughs> and I think they needed he he was almost like a warden down there amongst some of the other lifeguards. Ponch of course was sent there, Billy Moore, myself. And we actually didn't mind it. We had this sort of fraternity of, of looking after Tamaran because there was no easy rescues at Tamar because you generally end up on the rocks because it's such a narrow beach. But Billy Moore and I had this policy, goes, look, the beach is shut a lot of the time. The surfers need to have their time. And we had a great relationship with the surfers. We let them surf as much as we could, but we said, guys, look, when the flags need to go out, you need to respect that, right? 
well, trying to get some of the hardcore surfers <laughs> off that right-hander and left-hander coming in off Maccas into Tama, very difficult indeed. But we managed to do it because we'd often go surfing with them. On a Saturday morning, though, this character by the name of Glenn Hastings, Stacker, would turn up. <laughs> now, Stacker was a casual. Now, Stacker came down and goes, we've got to clear those surfers it's Saturday morning. Stacker, we've, we, we'll, we'll manage the situation. No, they've got to get cleared out. <laughs> Stacker would get his golf clubs out. He'd set up his <laughs> golf clubs and he'd start firing a one a one wood in, into the surface at the reef. Billy and I had established good relationships with these people all week. These surfers, and then Stacker started lobbing you know, one irons into them to clear the water. Oh God, we just we just cover our head. In the end, though, we realised on wet days, Hoppo. Yeah. We managed to create a little nine-hole golf course down there, didn't we? <laughs> At Tamarama. Wet days, nothing doing. We only needed two clubs, a putter and a sandwich. That's it. It's a, uh, it was a good bunker, wasn't it, down there, Tamarama? It was one great big bunker. We had some, <laughs> we had some, we had some great memories. And, that, and although we call it The Rock, we do it, with, we do it with fondness because the guys that were sent to The Rock are uh, usually a little bit eccentric, yeah. And uh, they always, we always had a lot of fun, and um, we have great memories of, of what we call affectionately known as the Rock, <laughs> mate. It's uh, some great memories there, and Pete, it's uh, a pleasure, mate, to have you in the beach shack telling these old stories. You betcha. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, Beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.